The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see all of you as you're getting settled. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible? If you need to use one of the Bibles from the pew in front of you, go ahead and grab that one and, and open it up to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Chapter 3. As you're making your way there, I felt like an appropriate question for a morning like this is is this, who here by show of hands, and if you're brave, you can raise your hand. You don't have to, though. I won't, I won't look down on you if you don't. But who here by a show of hands actually reads instruction manuals? Oh, yeah. <laughs> who here just rose their hand and was lying about that? <clears throat> yeah, the vast majority of people in the room did not raise their hand. So few people read instruction manuals because, seriously, what could the manufacturer of an item have to say to you and I about that item that we don't already know and understand ourselves? Like, I mean, what could they tell us about that item that you and I just don't know? Couldn't just figure out on our own, right? It's a problem. In fact, uh, this week my, my kids showed me a, uh, a video short of a driver, I will leave the gender nameless, uh, at a gas station um, being filmed by another patron of the gas station yelling at them, trying to help them while they had their hood up pouring a quart of cooking oil into their car because the oil light was on. And they went into the convenience store, Wawa Sheets, Big Sheets, and, and there was oil. So that's what they bought. Or better yet, I got curious after that. <laughs> so <laughs> I got sucked into the vortex. I found another video of a parent. You ever seen those like parent shaming videos where they're filming their kid after they've done something stupid and they're filming them for the world to see? It was a dad who was with his teen child driver who he had let borrow his truck and whose teen child driver took said truck to the gas station and filled that diesel truck up with regular gasoline. Do you know what happens when a highly combustible fuel like gas goes into a diesel engine? What is happening? Glenn knows what happens to it. It basically goes boom. Dad's very nice diesel truck was rendered inoperable at that point. But yet we know what to do with everything, right? We know how, how everything works. I mean, what could the maker or manufacturer of any item have to say about us that we couldn't figure out on our own? As that video went on, the dad was saying, what happened? Tell the world what you did. You know, like, tell the kids crying, like, what happened? They thought they were doing something nice for dad, taking the truck to the gas station to fill it back up before returning it to dad. Gas was cheaper than diesel. It was all at the same station. Pumps right next to each other. What's the big, big deal? 87, 89, 93, diesel, whatever. I'll pop that 87 in there. He'll be happy I filled the, the truck up. It should work. 
I walked into the store. I needed oil. I was being responsible. I bought oil. I put it in the engine. I think it should be fine, right? Friends, the manufacturer knows what will bring the most vitality to that product to get the most life out of it. That's reality. Reality is defined, in a sense, by that manufacturer. They know what brings that product, in this sense, that engine, that that vehicle, real vitality and life and, and power. It doesn't matter that gas and diesel are both at the same station and gas was cheaper than diesel at the time. It doesn't matter if you think it should be okay. It doesn't matter that that both engine oil and cooking oil were both in the same store at the gas station and you should just be able to get one and put it in. It doesn't matter if you think that's the, the best way to go about it because it was cheaper or more convenient. It's out of step with reality. It doesn't conform with reality. And the consequences abound. Well, the same holds true for all of God's creation, of which you and I, as humans, are a part of. God is the creator. He is the creator of all things. Therefore, he shapes and he defines reality for his creation. He and he alone is able to define that which brings life and vitality to that which he has created. He and he alone defines reality and thriving for his creation. And wisdom, as we've been talking about it in the book of Proverbs, is learning to live skillfully in God's world, in reality. Learning to live skillfully as his creations in his world, according to reality as he defines it, for his joy. And as we've seen over and over again for our deepest, deepest and abiding satisfaction. That's vitality. Folly, as we've seen over and over again, is living out of step with reality. It's living out of step with reality as God defines it in his world. Folly is putting gas in the diesel engine. Putting diesel in the gas engine. At best, you, you gum up some injectors and filters and the engine seizes. At worst, it goes boom. And there's a catastrophic loss. Yet the reality of it is, whether we want to see it or, or actually even want to own up to it, we we act like fools countless times a day. We take steps that are so far out of in accordance with reality. And it's been that way really ever, ever since the garden. All the way back at the beginning of the story. God created out of nothing all that came into being a reflection of his wisdom, of his majesty, of his splendor, of his beauty. He created Adam and Eve as as images, reflections of, of him. And there they are living in the wonder of what God has created. 
He's given them life. He's given them breath. He's given them everything, everything around them. Day by day in the garden, he proves to be a steadfast and faithful and reliable provider and guide. You know the story. The serpent enters into the picture and begins to whisper that God is actually holding back something from Adam and Eve. He's holding back something from them that would make them something more like him. He's holding back on something that if they were to have, it would redefine what it was to be free. It would redefine life. They would no longer live as dependent upon God's provision and upon his wisdom, his guidance to live in his world that he's created. They'd be able to think for themselves. No longer living on his handouts of guidance. No, they'd be empowered. It wouldn't kill them. It'd set them free. Remember the serpent told them in Genesis 3, God knows that if you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Take a bite. You'll have something better than what you have now. And it'll make you something that you are not yet. You know the story. What'd they do? In that moment, they leaned their weight into what they understood at that point as wise. And they did what seemed wise to them so they would have what they wanted and therefore be something they were not yet. You know, in verse 7 in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that the serpent was half right. When they did that, their eyes were opened for sure. But he lied. It did not leave them to the fullness of life and freedom. It, it led to misery. Wishing to be wise on their own, they became fools. And they grew increasingly foolish in their thinking. And increasingly foolish then in their living. Out of all that darkness now of their heart came a previously unimaginable depravity. Foolishness. Living against the grain of God's reality. Living out of step with reality as God defines it. It has beat in the heart of every person born since that moment. So centuries later, as God works by his spirit through Solomon and a handful of other writers to put together what we have as the book of Proverbs, an instrument that they would use at that point in the story of God's people as a tool to cultivate the hearts and the souls of Israel's young men and women we find in that book of wisdom guidance to live skillfully according to God's reality. We find this in Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 
How many of you know that those are the two most famous verses in the book of Proverbs? Arguably the most quoted verses by churchgoers in the history of the church. How many of you know that those two verses are joined in a Hebrew writing form called parallelism with the next two verses? Not many know the next two verses. Not many have memorized the next two verses. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Those two verses form with verses 5 and 6, in some sense, a prism that the truth that God is giving his people is refracted through so that you could see that, that light through its different wavelengths, see the different beauties and aspects of it through this one instrument. So I know you're familiar with the first two verses, so we're not going to talk about them. We're going to talk about the, the last two verses. Be not wise in your own eyes, which is a parallel to do not lean on your own understanding. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, which is a parallel to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Because it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, which parallels with he will make straight your paths. And if we're honest, I think one of the reasons why we, we tend to separate these verses the way we do and we tend to major on the first two verses and stick the other two verses that are part of the understanding into the shadows and, and very rarely sit with them, think about them and memorize them is because those other two verses that we tend to put away, they hit really different than the first two. Right? You're sitting down with friends, you're, you're processing through life, you've got decisions in front of you, you've got circumstances that you're walking through, you're thinking through them, you're talking through them with people. Man, it sounds great to hear, man, trust in the Lord. We can put that on a shirt, right? We can put coasters and you can leave out everywhere. Hey, just trust in the Lord. He'll make your path straight. Man, you go, you just trust him. That hits entirely different than sitting down with the same circumstance and the same situation and the same realities of life with the same people and laying it out and, and hearing, hey, where is your processing of this? Are you being wise in your own eyes as you are thinking about it? Where the awe and the reverence of God who defines reality for his creation hasn't captivated your heart. And man, where is your thinking through it as he helped you to see that this own understanding you have from your own wisdom is, is possibly clouding your view of what's happening here and you could, could see it and you could name it, begin to turn away from it and, and begin to see more clearly according to what he's directed. Don't be wise in your own eyes. I prefer trusting the Lord. Just do that. Yet not being wise in our own eyes, fearing him and forsaking evil is the framework of a life of refreshment, restoration, living in God's world under his rule according to reality. 
Yet more often than we want to admit when it comes to our life, we're, we're like those videos, putting diesel in the gas engine because we think we should be able to. It's there. Why not? It should be okay. And we wonder why we feel like our spiritual life seems gummed up, not firing very efficiently, maybe even seized up altogether. Friends, not being wise in our own eyes is so central to our deepest joy and to God's glory through our life that it is a refrain that is repeated over and over and over again, not only in the book of Proverbs, but in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if God is the creator of all things and the definer of reality, we should take pause at anything that he says to us. How much more so a warning that he repeats over and over and over and over and over again. And so this morning, we're just going to do that. We're going to consider what he might be saying and how it might be helpful in exposing what we see and how we see. In Proverbs 26, Solomon asks a wonderful question. Proverbs 26, verse 12, he asked this question. Do you see a man or a woman, a person, who is wise in their own eyes? It's a great question. Do you see someone wise in their own eyes? So here's what I want you to do. I'll give you just a second. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine a picture of what you think about when you answer that question. I want you to imagine someone wise in their own eyes. What are they doing? Why is this what you're seeing? I'll give you a second to think about it. Again, you don't have to raise your hands if you don't want to, but I wonder if any of you actually saw yourself in your mind. Most likely, you, you probably saw a picture. Maybe it's someone you know or a composite of people you've experienced, but certainly that image was someone who seemed to have a utterly unbridled and often unfounded sense of confidence in their own ideas. Right? You know what I'm talking about? That person who enters into every conversation, into every situation, into every room with this absolutely unbridled confidence in what they're saying. More often than not, if you're really honest, if you look back over the track record of their life and their decisions and what they've done, there's an unfounded foundation for that confidence. It is utterly unearned. And yet they walk around with this unbridled, unrestrained confidence in their own ideas. Almost like you and I should just be so thankful to the Lord that he has put them in our presence in that moment. Because they've got it figured out. Or maybe it's a person who is somewhat like that or you see them in your mind and You've experienced them in your life. They, they can walk into any situation, any conversation, any meeting, uh, any, any time at lunch or coffee, any time they're with somebody, they can walk into it. Man, people can be having just 
honest and open conversations about life. You can be thinking about like what's going on in the world around us and you're looking at what's going on over in the Middle East and you're, you're trying to process the history of what's happened in that region and the impact that it's, that it's had now even in our lives today. And this person can sit there and they have a surefire answer to how things could go if people just listened to them. Complex geopolitical situations like that that people have spent their entire careers and their entire lives studying, trying to understand, and that has left them with a level of reservation in the way they speak. This person's got it. This is all that has to happen. Do this and it will all get straightened out. Maybe that's what you see, right? It's helpful to remember that when we come to the book of Proverbs, that it was a, an instrument that was used and intended for the cultivating of, of Israel's young men and women. And the arrogance and the pride of being wise in your own eyes used to be, not always exclusively, but used to be something that was predominantly associated with the young. Unearned, unfounded confidence in their wisdom, their eyes, and the way they see the world. It used to be something, it wasn't exclusively, but it used to be something that was often only associated with the young because what we used to understand and what we used to see lived out was that through a series of experiences and sufferings and years and age, experience and maturation used to be the great exposer of ignorance. And the more we would see just how great and deep our potential to sin and harm ourselves and others was, the slower we would become to having such an unfounded and unbridled confidence in our own ideas and our own decisions. Yet again, if we're willing to be really honest, in our day, there seems to be an absolutely rapid race the older we get to get back to the things we had to remember when we were young the bodies we had the experiences we had there seems to be this obsession with youthfulness and there used to be a time when youthfulness was associated with energy and foolishness and now we seem to be running back to everything associated with that time including the foolishness and it doesn't matter if you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, your 50s, your 60s, or your 70s. We tend to live in God's world in, in such a way that we display a real lack of a sense of self-awareness anymore at all. It used to be said predominantly of the young. Not so much of the older, but predominantly of the young that Satan would hold the world out as glamorous and undiscovered. The shiny object syndrome of youthfulness is chase after all that he held out, forgetting, as Solomon said in the very beginning of the book, that behind the words in the door of folly lie death and destruction. They didn't know what they didn't know. The young were wise in their own eyes and they would chase after things that brought death, but experience and age and maturation taught us just how ignorant we were and slowed the roll, but not anymore. It doesn't seem like. 
It used to be predominantly something that we would deal with when we talked about the young, but now it knows no bounds, really. The shiny object of the world being held out as something to desire and something to discover. It, it's, we seem to be fighting each other at every generation to bite that lure. The reality of it is, is because of the sin that still remains, we, we all, teens, 20s, 50s, 70s, we all still wrestle in profound ways with pride and selfish ideas. We're still hounded by self-indulgence and self-importance. Do you, do you know yourself well enough to know that the last thing you need to be doing is leaning into your own understanding? Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? Solomon says there is more hope for a fool than for him. There's more hope for a fool than for him. And Solomon wasn't the only one to talk about this. God spoke to his people through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.21. He said, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. One of God's great woes through his prophets was to this very reality. Woe to those who who are wise in their own eyes, who think that they know how to determine for themselves reality, who think that they know how to not only determine reality for themselves, but then live according to their reality and flourish, who think they can take that cooking oil and put it in the engine, and somehow everything's going to work out. How do you spot someone like, how else do you begin to spot someone, maybe even yourself if you're willing to look, who might be wise in their own eyes? Well, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. I, we'll listen to Solomon here. Part of our task in this series, I'll be honest with you, was that we asked everybody who was preaching to just preach on one proverb. You know, the way that you tend to go through Proverbs is go through a theme, Bring them all together and you can paint a composite of things. But we're going to just do one. I'm kind of cheating. Sorry. Proverbs 12, 15. Listen to what he says. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And we've already learned that there's more hope for a fool than for someone wise in their own eyes. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now it's going to get real, right? If you've been able to live for the past 20 minutes in the abstract reality of thinking about wise in their own eyes and living up here, now it's going to get real. Because here's the deal. On this side of Jesus' return and the present temptation of sin and the sin nature that resides in us means that within us there is always a fool whispering to us that we don't need the insight the counsel of others who may understand something from a different perspective or in a different way than we do. Maybe because we're arrogant. Maybe because we're afraid. The sheer ask, the sheer recognition of that, the sheer moving towards that 
it might threaten to expose us in a way that we don't want to be seen by other people. But pride, fear, even shame, we saw last week, those are the very things that keep us trapped in the process of trying to conceal the reality of the sin in our lives that leaves us groaning in our bones and our spiritual vitality sapped away. They're often the same things that, that keep us wise in our own eyes as well. Now, like we said last week, the best way at times to not only understand the scripture, but to see it illustrated, brought to life, is through the Bible itself. And so there's a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 10 that brings this reality to life for us. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'll tell you the story. You can write it down. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 10. It's the story of a guy named Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, who was king of Israel. Now, Solomon died which means that Rehoboam was going to become king. And so as he was getting ready to assume the throne, uh, the, the people came to pledge their allegiance to him as king. And when they came to him to pledge their allegiance to him as king, they had a request. Their request of him was that he would lighten the burden that his father had put on them. Towards the end of Solomon's reign, as his, his life began to shift and turn, he began to burden the people of God with labor and work to build all these things that he wanted for himself and his own activities. And so they came to him and said, would you lighten the burden your father placed on us? Do that or we're yours, we're yours. So do you know what Rehoboam did? He said, I need to get some counsel pretty good isn't it here's what he does first thing he does is he grabs all the advisors and the seasoned men who had served his father Solomon and all, all the old heads of the day right guys who had seen it and done it they saw Solomon's decisions they saw the processes they saw the pains they saw the victories they saw God's faithfulness they saw all this stuff he brought them to him to advise him and this is what they told him if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them. And if you'll be good to the people of God as you lead them as their king and speak good words to them. That's pretty good, isn't it? If you do that, they'll be yours forever. This, these are the guys. They'd seen it, they'd done it. The Rehoboam brought them, listen. You know what he did? Verse eight, Second Chronicles 10. Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him. And he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. He went and got his boys. He had all the guys who had grown up with him. Not sons or, or nephews of the king, buddies of the next in line. They knew what they were working with. So did he. He got all of his buddies together. He said, what do you think I should do? You know what they told him to do? Man, double that burden. You're king now. You got to flex on the people. They got to know. You're in charge. This is what it looks like. You got to exercise that authority. Don't take the burden away. Make it harder. So Rehoboam came to the people who had come to him to pledge their allegiance to him as king. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to make it harder on you. And do you know what happened? They said, oh, praise God. I wanted to get fitter and work harder. I wanted to do harder things. No. 
the kingdom was split in half. They did not pledge their allegiance to him. The kingdom of God was split. Why? Pride. The most ancient of sins. Slowly, slowly endearing us to ourselves. Unearned confidence in the little that you actually know. Rehoboam and his boys felt like they knew better than all of the men who had served with and counseled his dad. Their uninformed perspective of what it is to be king seemed right in their own eyes. And here's the thing. When it comes to the consequences of being right in our own eyes as a way of living, we often don't know how wrong we really are until it's too late. Half of you or more could probably quote to me in some translation or version of the scriptures that say that wisdom or insight is found in a multitude of counselors. But that's not what Rehoboam wanted. Rehoboam didn't want counsel. He wanted confirmation. He wanted validation. And if there is a contemporary illustration of a church that's wise in its own eyes, it is the excessive preoccupation of the church today to surround ourselves with people who will validate and confirm what we want rather than surround ourselves with people who will speak to us the truth of what's actually happening. He knew exactly what his boys were going to say before they showed up. He surrounded himself with people who wouldn't help him see what he couldn't see, who wouldn't show him the blind spots, who, who wouldn't show him what he couldn't see in himself. He surrounded himself with people who would tell him what he already wanted to hear. Wise in his own eyes. Friends, how often do you, do you come into circumstances and situations in your life and sitting there in a situation, let's say, that requires you to make a, a decision? How often do you come in and gather people around you that you love and trust and go, you know what? My view of this thing is too narrow. I don't know what I can't see in myself. I don't know what I can't see here. I'm not being lazy. I have prayed. I have I've sought the Lord. I have, I've tried to understand the different aspects of the decisions of what's going on, the things that I can understand. But here's the thing. I don't know what I don't know. There are blind spots that I have that I can't see. My view is like this on this thing. Can you help me see what I can't see? Can you help me see what's actually happening here, maybe from a perspective and an insight and an experience that I've never had and didn't even know to consider? Or if you think about it, are you more prone to gather for yourself confirmers who you know will already agree with your perspective on things? How often when you gather people around as you make a decision you're trying to sort it out, do you actually frame an issue to people who might be more objective in this situation than you, but you frame it in such a way that they could only end up agreeing with what it is you already want. It's 
stacking the deck of information for them in a way that leaves them saying the very thing you want them to say and they don't even know it. One writer said, you and I can appear wise while foolishly pursuing what's right in our own eyes. Therefore, the wise man or woman does not pack the jury or skew the evidence, but listens, listens to counsel offered by honest advisors from multiple perspectives who have heard all the relevant information. We're not holding back bits of information that might lead someone objective in the matter to tell us something we don't want to hear. We're not packing the jury of our insight and counsel with people who are only going to confirm and validate the very things we feel or say we want. There is a way that seems right to man, Solomon will write in Proverbs 14, 12. It seems wise in his eyes. It seems right to him in what he wants. But in the end, it leads to death. Not refreshment, not healing, not restoration. Friends, the sin of pride, the, the sin of self-conceit, self-indulgence of being wise in our own eyes, it's not in step with reality. It's not in step with living skillfully in God's world under his rule for his glory and your joy. Paul would write to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 12 and even on this side of the cross it says never, not woe to you if, not it would be wise, not never be wise in your own eyes. Friends, anything that God, the creator of all things, including ourselves, the definer and shaper of reality, says we should consider, how much more so, again, the warnings that he continues to give over and over again. The self-assurance and the self-conceit the prideful arrogance that drives us to live wise according to our own eyes, it will ultimately only lead to death. It will destroy us and the people around us. In his great commentary on the book of Proverbs, Ray Ortland said the universe, reality, God's world under his rule, the universe will not cooperate with your arrogant self-centeredness. It will not fall in line and in step with your self-conceit. It's not going to bend its way to fall into step and cadence with what you think is wise in your eyes. No, you'll be left with a life not knowing the deep, refreshing, healing peace that Solomon speaks of by God's spirit. How do you and I begin to enter into this refreshment? How do we begin to enter into this vitality? 
this refreshing and healing of our entire being? How, how do we begin? What does it look like to live now? In step with reality as God defines it. Well, that path begins and that path continues on and in a deep and profound humility. That's what Solomon is getting after here when he says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And there's something grammatically interesting right there. Fearing the Lord, that is the linchpin of the entire book of Proverbs. That is the thesis of the entire book on what it is to live wisely in God's world. It begins with the fear of the Lord and the right response to the fear of the Lord, the right response to understanding ourselves and his world according to his creation is to respond and forsaking that, including the self-conceit and the self-indulgence of thinking we know it all. It's to respond and putting those things away. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord all over the place. It talks about forsaking, repenting of sin all over the place. But only here in this proverb are the two linked together in a singular way. Solomon doesn't say fear the Lord and forsake evil. They will bring healing and refreshment to your bones. No, he says it. As though they're fused together in a unique way. recognizing and responding to God's rightful rule as creator. That's reality. The fear of the Lord is recognizing who he is and responding with a reverence and an awe that grips your heart so tight that you can't help but listen. You can't help but surrender. Reality is pressed so hard and deep into your heart and into your soul as you see the world for what it is and him for who he is and you for who you are in it. You can't help but surrender. And you can't help but lean and trust into reality as he defines it. That's the fear of the Lord. The heartbeat of the entire book the beginning of living skillfully in his world for his glory and your joy. It's the birthplace of a real, profound, deep humility. Recognizing who he is and who you are. Right, if you're with us at the beginning of the series, we, we said that this fear for a Christian is not the kind of fear that makes you run away, but it's the kind of fear that makes you bow. It overwhelms and humbles. Fear the Lord. Begin to see by his grace and the work of his spirit reality and respond accordingly, turning from evil like we talked about last week, recognizing reality, recognizing what it is to live according to his rule for his glory and our joy and responding appropriately, seeing just how profoundly tempted I am to live according to the wisdom of my own eyes. Owning it for what it is. 
The arrogance and the self-conceit that thinks that I can define what is right and what is best and what reality is according to my own wants and my own desires, not according to the one who created all things. See it for what it is. Speak it in specifics. Own it. That we might be able to begin to forsake it. Turn from the evil and the sin of such arrogant and proud self-conceit. It's insanity. It's choosing to live out of step with reality. It's choosing the path of foolishness and folly that God repeatedly helps us to see only leads to our own destruction. Fear the Lord. Turn from evil. This is the path into. This is the sustaining work of enjoying the restoring, refreshing, healing grace of God. John Wesley, he's the the founder of what you and I know to be the Methodist movement. He said, give me a hundred men and women who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I don't care whether they are pastors, clergymen, or laymen, members of the church. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God on earth. I want to get in on that. Do you see someone who is wise in their own eyes? Friends, all it takes is to take a good look into the mirror. It's not hard. All it takes is with the humility of desiring reality, asking God by his spirit to help you see what you can't see. Help me see just how dependent I am on living according to my own understanding. And help me see just how often and where, even here in this decision, in this moment, in this circumstance, help me to see what I can't see about myself or I don't want to see about myself. Help me to see where I'm approaching this reality, being wise in my own eyes. Help me to see. I want to see what you see and help me to hate it the way that you hate it. Help me. Show me. And I promise you he'll show you. Help me see. Impress reality deep into my heart. Give me that awe and that surrender of understanding whose world it really is and who defines what vitality and joy and nourishment is for me. Ask him. Do you see someone wise in their own eyes? If you don't see yourself, just sit with him and ask him to help you see. I promise he'll show you. And as he does, ask him 
Give me the strength and the passion of desire for life and joy to be willing to name that thing for what it is. To own it, to confess it. But in this circumstance, in the next circumstance, day by day by day by day, by your kindness and grace, I can put it to death. And that's the path to refreshment. That's the path to healing. That's the path to restoration. That's what it is to live according to his reality as he begins to make the path straight. That's what God in his steadfast love and faithfulness and kindness is holding out, not from, holding out for us as his creation. C.S. Lewis said that real repentance means unlearning all of the self-conceit that we've been training ourselves into our entire life. That's what Solomon is talking about. And that unlearning of all the self-conceit starts and it continues day by day with a fear of the Lord. And you and I, in the humility that is born of a right understanding of him and reality, Respond accordingly. That is the cultivation of profound humility in our hearts according to reality as God defines it. That is what brings us into and carries us along in the restoring grace of our Father. He is the one who gives grace to the humble. The proud, you can probably quote that one to me too, The proud he opposes. The ones wise in their own eyes, the face of their own creator and savior. All you get is opposition. It's insanity. It's putting the diesel in the gas engine knowingly. But to those who are dying daily to this desire to be wise in their own eyes, dying daily to this temptation to lean into our own understanding of life and the world, recognizing and responding rightly, humbly to reality as God has defined it. Man, he is the one who gives the grace, not only of guidance and straightening the paths, but in restoration, healing, refreshment, and peace. That is our Father. This morning... You and I have the opportunity to respond to him. And here's what we're going to do. This is how it it operates. The first thing we're going to do is you have an opportunity to respond is we're just going to give you a couple of minutes to sit silently and reflect on what you have read and what you have heard. And you have the opportunity to start the conversation with him. Ask him to show you just how much you love being wise in your own eyes. Help him to show you what he sees what you can't see about yourself, what you don't want to see about yourself. After a couple of minutes of just sitting with him and allowing him to to, to deal with us and us with him, we're going to have an opportunity for you to proclaim your confidence in him as not only creator, but savior and redeemer and restorer. For those who by God's grace through faith in his son Jesus have placed your confidence in him as king and savior, you'll be invited to come forward to receive communion, taking a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place for your sins, dipping it in that cup, 
as we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we come forward to do that and proclaim our confidence in him, we're reminded again that God's infinite good wisdom made a way for his steadfast love to satisfy his holy standards without compromising any ounce of his justice and his righteousness, and he did it through his son. The one who humbled himself to the point of the most excruciating and humiliating death imaginable. One he did not deserve. But he did that so that by grace, through faith in him, we, you and I, can know healing and refreshment. This morning, if you're here and you would say you're not a follower of Jesus, we just want you to know we're glad that you're actually here. His invitation to you is an invitation to come and to be with him. It's an invitation to trust him. It's an invitation to lay aside the the way that you have lived, leaning into the fullness of your understanding, your limited understanding of reality. It's to lay aside your proclivity to be wise in your own eyes, thinking you can define for yourself what flourishing and joy and satisfaction is in this life and to lean all that you are into him as he defines reality as he demonstrates a love for you that you were made for. His invitation is for you to come to him and all that it takes is for you with the the empty hands of confidence and faith to come to him and to receive that invitation. So this morning, as people begin to get up in a minute and begin to come forward and proclaim their confidence in Jesus, I I just want you this morning to, to remain where you are, to consider what you have heard, to consider what we've sung, to consider the invitation that God holds out to you. And, and if you're here and you want to understand more about who he is and, and the invitation that he has, grab me outside, grab Ray, grab Tim, grab one of the pastors, grab whoever you came with, whoever invited you. We'd love to help you better understand that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a moment to just let you sit and deal with God. And then we're going to respond to him as we proclaim our confidence through receiving communion and singing. And he's going to send us out from here. So let me pray and then we'll continue. Good and gracious, gracious Father. We need you to continue to rescue us from the foolishness of thinking that we can be wise in our own eyes, that somehow we can define reality for ourselves that we can define what brings vitality and life to us. Rescue us from such self-conceit and self-consumption for your glory, for, for our joy. Give us eyes to see reality and awe and reverence that comes from seeing once again who you are and who we are. We ask that by your Spirit, you Respond humbly. Respond fervently. Respond dependently. Respond with great joy. We ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green. 
given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.